So what if you could take a volcano and turn it upside down so that instead of that huge explosion going up into the sky, it goes down into the earth and once it's down there, it releases this huge ocean of energy that could heat our homes for decades to come. Wouldn't that be great? Or would it? I'm John Donvan of Intelligence Squared US. Get ready for a debate, not on the upside down volcano, because it is a metaphor, a flawed one, uh, does not exist, but on the principle of technology that works in a similar way. It is called fracking. And it is a debate because fracking actually is getting at an enormous amount of natural gas energy that this nation does need. But at the same time, it is feared that fracking could be having enormous and terrible toxic consequences, destructive to the environment and destructive to the communities. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will be arguing for and against this specific motion. No fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. Our debate will go in three rounds, then the audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. On the side, arguing for the motion, Deborah Goldberg, a managing attorney with the environmental law firm Earth Justice. Your partner is Catherine Hudson. She is the Watershed Program Director of Riverkeeper, a clean water advocacy group based in New York. On the side against Joe Nocera, he is an award-winning journalist and op-ed columnist for the New York Times. And his partner, Susan Tierney, a former Assistant Secretary for Policy in the U.S. Department of Energy. I'm now going to reintroduce everyone because what we just did was for our television broadcast and now we're going to do a little bit for our radio broadcast. And I appreciate the applause. It's very, very good for our transitions, so thank you. And if you don't applaud at one point or raise my hand, that's me saying please applaud again. <laughs> our motion is no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. Let's meet our debaters and welcome first Deborah Goldberg. Deborah is a managing attorney at Earth Justice, the world's first and largest nonprofit environmental law firm. Deborah, you've worn uh, many different hats, but now that you're in this field, I understand the way you came to it had something to do with birds. That's right. Um, my love for birds is what woke me up to the risk that climate change poses for biodiversity. And I got involved in fracking because we aren't going to be able to deal with climate change unless we end our addiction to fossil fuels. All right, thank you very much. Um, your partner is Catherine Hudson. Ladies and gentlemen, Catherine Hudson. <laughs> Catherine, you are uh, an avid outdoors woman. Outdoors woman. You, you ski, you rock climb, you sail on the Hudson River. You spent nearly 25 years in New York State government working in the Environmental Protection Bureau of the Attorney General's Office and also uh, the Department of Environmental Conservation. So it sounds like you've been in this all of your life, but at one time you were actually a probation officer? That's right, it was a bit of an unusual start for me, but uh, I found myself working as a probation officer in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and it is actually what pushed me to go to law school because I realized that I wanted to be part of the system. Uh, I thought I could make a difference if I was and not on the receiving end of the system. Thank you very much, Kate Hudson. Our motion is no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. And here is arguing against the motion. First, Joe Nocera. Joe, you are an award-winning journalist working for the New York Times. Um, 
uh, now uh, with the op-ed page after writing for them for a long time. In April 2000, uh, you went to the op-ed page. And since then, some of your columns on energy have, uh, have brought down uh, fire upon your head. Uh, you've been referred to by Climate Pro uh, Progress as a member of the Climate Ignorati. Yes, I have. Uh, <laughs> you've been de denounced by Robert Redford. I have. That's uh, right. So, so did, did you see all of this coming your way when you took um, your stance? You know, when I first started writing about energy issues in the op-ed page, I was surprised that, I was not surprised that people were disagreeing with me. I kind of expected that, but I was surprised by the vehemence of it. Um, the only time I've ever been accosted in the grocery store for a column I wrote was after one of my fracking columns. All right. We'll see what happens here tonight. Let's meet your yeah. partner. Also arguing that the natural gas boom has been a good thing for the country, Susan Tierney. She is a managing principal at Analysis Group, uh, where she consults on any energy economics and environmental issues. She has been in government uh, for the state of Massachusetts and uh, was also an assistant secretary for policy at the U.S. Department of Energy during the Clinton administration. And um, you, uh, interesting thing, you were an art history major. Yes. So, so what does this say? What is it, are the art historians doomed if they're all going into energy? Or do you still believe? Uh, what it means is that I was a pretty mediocre artist. And so then I thought, well, art history, that's kind of right. And then I was a pretty mediocre art historian. So I did whatever anybody in that circumstance would do. I became a policy wonk. I hear, I, I hear from your brother you're a good debater. Oh, only because we did it around the, bre the breakfast All table. Right, we'll, find, we'll find out more. So our motion is this, no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. You, our live audience, will choose our winners by voting on that motion both before the debate and once again when the debate is completed. So let's go to the first vote. There's a keypad at your seat on the right-hand side. Uh, this is a tricky motion because if you're for the motion, you're against fracking. I want that to be clear to you. You've heard what they're, wh where they're coming from. If you're for this side, if you're, uh, if you're for this side, if you're for the motion, no fracking way, press number one. If you are with this side, Against no fracking way means you support fracking, push number two. If you're undecided, push number three. And if you made a mistake, just correct it, and the system will lock in your last vote. And what we'll do is we're going to hold the, that result for you. Is it, it, does, does the buzz buzz mean that you're confused? or Are there any questions? No? Everybody's good? Okay. And so what we're going to do at the end of the debate We'll reveal both of the numbers, and the team whose numbers have changed the most in the course of the evening will be declared our winner. So on to round one. Our motion is no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. And here to speak first for the motion, Kate Hudson. She spent nearly 25 years in New York State government serving in the Attorney General's office and in the Department of Environmental Conservation. She is now the Watershed Program Director at Riverkeeper, a member-supported clean water advocacy group. Ladies and gentlemen, Kate Hudson. The motion before us tonight is no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. Yes, the gas boom is doing more harm than good. But why? What is going on? Simply, the gas companies are rushing forward in the face of too many unknowns and too little control. In essence, these companies are engaged in an uncontrolled experiment, which is resulting in extreme and in some cases permanent harm to people, communities, and the environment that cannot be compensated for by any possible benefits. 
What my partner, Deborah Goldberg, and I will be talking with you about tonight is what those harms are that are being faced across the country because of the natural gas boom, the health risks for individuals, the impacts to the environment, and the costs for local communities. And why, in the face of the unknowns, in the face of the harms, gas companies are so intent on rushing forward, hoping to figure it out along the way. But what exactly is fracking? Deborah and I use the term fracking to refer to the entire cradle-to-grave process of natural gas extraction, from site preparation through transmission to end uses. The process begins with cutting access roads through the existing landscape and stripping a site about the size of five football fields to serve as a multi-well pad. Then the drilling rig will arrive, along with thousands of truckloads of equipment, water, sand, and chemicals that will be used to drill thousands of feet into the ground and miles horizontally. This is followed by the actual fracturing of the well, which involves repeatedly, for a month or more, forcing two to eight million gallons of water and hundreds of undisclosed chemicals underground, under pressure, to fracture the rock, allowing the gas to escape. Then something must be done with a large quantity of contaminated wastewater, up to several million gallons per well, that will come back up along with the methane now released from the shale. If not properly handled, the methane may find its way into nearby drinking water wells. It may also be released into the air, either intentionally or as a result of leaks. The methane gas that is captured is then processed and forced through gathering lines and into high-pressure pipelines that will need to be constructed from numerous wellheads for hundreds and thousands of miles to the place where the gas will be burned, permanently carving up the landscape and communities that lie in between. To give you a clearer idea of how this fracking process is impacting people and communities, imagine that you go home tonight and find out that your next door neighbor has signed a lease with a gas drilling company without asking you. What can you expect from this industrial activity going on next door? Even though you didn't choose to lease, you will be exposed to the same risks of contamination to the water you drink and the air you breathe as your neighbor. You will be subject to the same threat of leaks and spills of the fracking wastewater, which contain known carcinogens and radioactive material. Fracking-related spills occur, on average, once every three days in Colorado. Moreover, the industry has no safe disposal plan for this waste. Much of it is currently injected into underground wells, but this practice has been linked to earthquakes, and there's growing evidence that these wells are leaking. The gas well itself and associated processing, compression, and storage tanks will leak toxic and smog-forming air pollutants. The one pr once pristine air in fracked parts of Wyoming is now worse than the air in Los Angeles because of this. The few studies we do have show increased risks of cancer and respiratory diseases in gasland communities linked to the, these releases. Like your leasing neighbor, you will be unable to escape noise that can sound, the constant day and night truck traffic, estimated by New York State at 4,000 truck trips per well. There will be 24-7 noise that can sound like a jet engine and glaring lights all night long <clears throat> during the drilling and fracturing of the well over the next month or more. You will also potentially have <clears throat> excuse me, gas pipelines cross your property, whether you agree to it or not and you will be subject to the same increase in your taxes as your drilling neighbor. 
when your town has to repair the road damage caused by the heavy truck traffic that comes with fracking that will tear apart your rural and suburban streets, and when your town has to meet the increased demands for community services from transient drill crews. Proponents argue that the economic benefits outweigh these risks of harm, but what are the supposed benefits of this industrial activity, almost literally in your backyard or down the street from your children's school? The economic benefits for you will be limited. There will be access to cheap natural gas, at least for a little while, but it won't last for very long because the amount that can be forced out of the earth is limited and will run out. But even more important, it will not remain cheap because industry will be doing everything it can to increase the price of gas, including exporting America's gas to other countries where they can triple, get triple the price on the U.S. market today. The drilling will bring jobs, at least while the drill rigs are in town, but not very many and not for long. And these gas industry jobs are some of the most life-threatening in the country. Oil and gas workers are seven times more likely to die on the job than the national average. And fracking can destroy businesses that could sustain local economies into the future after the fracking broom is over, like agriculture, recreation, and tourism. What is clear is that gas companies are not willing to wait. The natural gas boom is moving forward as a large uncontrolled experiment with every individual, family, and community who has not signed a lease being forced to participate without their consent. Whatever transitory benefits fracking may provide is outweighed by all of the harms that it currently brings. But even more important, there are some harms that simply cannot be compensated for. If you can no longer live in your home or continue to work your family farm, if you lose your health, the health of your child, if you lose your life as hundreds of oil and gas workers have, if you lose access to drinkable water or breathable air, as individuals and communities across the fracking states have, there is no good that can outweigh such harms. Until we have a much better understanding of the processes and the true risks, until there are mandatory rules in place to control these risks and eliminate the extreme harms, and until the industry actually follows those rules, the only defensible course of action is a cautious one. The only reasonable and fair answer is no, no fracking way. Thank you, Kate Huffington. Our motion is no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. And now here to speak against the motion, uh, Jono Serra. He is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and a regular business commentator on NPR's weekend edition Saturday, award-winning journalist and a best-selling author. Ladies and gentlemen, Jono Serra. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, in, in Kate's opening statement, uh, there's one word that she didn't use, and that word is coal. And we're going to use that word a lot on our side of the ledger tonight because um, part of the case for natural gas is it's the best single way to diminish our use on coal, of coal. And coal is, without question, the, the most environmentally hazardous fuel that we have in America. Um, you know, Fred Krupp from uh, the Environmental Defense Fund was in Aspen not very long ago. And he did a panel um, on fracking. And he said, you know, I'm a realist. I'm also an environmentalist. Fracking is here, and we have to regulate it. It's not that impossible. Um, we regulate banks. We regulate children's toys.
We regulate automobiles. We do regulate banks, actually. But when it comes to gas, we are in, a, we are in what, um, uh, what, we're in a golden age of gas. That's what we're in. It's not like we have a little bit of gas that we're, we're busy trying to extract here and there and it's going to run out tomorrow. We have something on the order of 2,000 trillion cubic feet of gas. We use about 24 trillion cubic feet a year. So we have about an 80 to 100 year supply right now. Um, that means, among other things, that gas is incredibly cheap. Right now it's in the $2 range. It probably, yes, it probably will go up to the 4 or $5 range, which still makes it much cheaper than most other fuels and makes it very competitive with coal. Gas has cheap energy is an enormous boon for the country, just cheap energy across the board. It, 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 it increases our GDP. Um, it, has, it has enormous ramification uh, well, beyond, well beyond jobs. Natural gas also has the ability to be a transformative fuel and a bridge fuel as we think about um, uh, mo moving to renewals. Excuse me one second. So, so economic benefits is one kind of benefit. A second kind of benefit, obviously, is the energy security benefit. Um, I'm going to read something from the Wall Street Journal that ran just a few days ago. America will have its reliance, half its reliance on Middle, on Middle East oil by the end of this decade and could be completely rid of it by 2035 due to the declining demand and the rapid growth of new petroleum sources in the Western Hemisphere. Shale rock is one of those sources. Now, who made this projection? It was OPEC itself. Think about a world where you don't have to worry about cartels. You don't have to worry about being dependent on our enemies for oil. A world where, where foreign policy is not dictated by our needs for oil. The ability of the United States to have its own resource once again in a way that we never thought we were going to is a tremendous gift that's been handed to us. And fracking is the way that we're taking advantage of it. Now, the third aspect that I want to talk about is the environmental benefit, which is real and which is happening now. Um, as recently as 2009, 45% of the power generation in the country was coal. 23% was natural gas. Today, it's about evenly split. There is a rush to natural gas and away from coal. This is a great thing for the country. Um, natural gas is as half the C2, uh, CO2 emissions than, than uh, coal. 90, coal has 90 times more sulfur dioxide, five times more ni nitrogen oxide, Coal is the dirtiest fuel we have. And so the ability to switch to natural gas it is, has the potential to transform, uh, transform the country. You know, in, in Europe, uh, where they like to think of themselves as extremely environmentally sensitive, you know, their emissions are actually going up because they're building more coal-fired power plants. In America, our emissions are flat and going slightly down, according to studies, and a large part of the reason is because we're having this rush to natural gas. Um, 
have a very dry throat up here in Aspen. Um, the, the same is also true of, of China, of Mexico, of Russia, um, and of a handful of other countries that are, are relying on other sources than gas. Uh, we have, what we actually have is a minute and 31 seconds. You're going to get 20 seconds more for the water drink. Go ahead. I am? Yeah, yeah. You're all, right. all cool with that, right? You'll give him the water. It's clean water. Okay. <laughs> I have actually made my case. You're good? I'm good. All right. I don't need seven minutes. Drink water. Thank you. Joe Nacera. So a, a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, fighting it out over this motion. No fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. You have heard from the first two debaters. Now on to the third. Uh, Deborah Goldberg is a managing attorney at Earth Justice, an environmental law firm that provides legal representation at no cost to more than 1,000 clients ranging from large national groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council to small community coalitions. Ladies and gentlemen, Deborah Goldberg. To start, I'd like to bring the focus back to the motion that we've been asked to debate. We aren't here tonight to decide whether or not fracking is a gift. So was the Trojan horse. We are here to decide whether or not the natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. So what characterizes a boom? It's big, it's sudden, and it blows a lot of smoke. And the natural gas boom is doing all of that to an extreme. It's too much, it's too fast, and the hype is just over the top. So why do I say that it's too much? The most serious health and environmental impacts of fracking are largely due to very intensive gas development. We have 500,000 gas wells in this country, nearly 3,000 in one county, 11 compressor stations, belching carcinogenic air emissions in a tiny town of only two square miles. Our bodies and our ecosystems can absorb a certain amount of abuse and still bounce back. But at a certain point, it's just too much. And the insults overwhelm the resilience. Take Pennsylvania, for example. In the beginning, Pennsylvania was letting the frackers take their wastewater, which is contaminated with very high levels of salts, to sewage treatment plants, where it was diluted with the sewage and then discharged into rivers and streams. In short order, we had a water quality violation in the drinking water supply for 350,000 people. And what's more, Pennsylvania realized that if they continued to let the frackers take that amount of waste to sewage treatment plants, they would salinate every freshwater stream in the state in a period of two years. The same dynamic operates on a global level. Our atmosphere can absorb a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions, but if we release too much, the climate warms to a point of catastrophic change. And the natural gas boom is taking us to that tipping point because the way that fracking is done now releases very large amounts of methane into the air. And methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, almost 72 times as potent as carbon dioxide, depending on the time frame that you look at. A recent study showed 
that the leakage from fracking is about 4% of production, and the scientists have recognized that at that level, gas loses its entire climate advantage over coal when it's burned for electrical power. The intensive development isn't really even good for the industry. Right now, the industry is losing money on every dry gas well it drills, but it's even worse for solar, wind, and other clean energy sources because they are displaced when the price of natural gas drops so low. The boom is not only too big, but it's way too fast. It is out ahead of the science. We do know, as a result of lots of public pressure, that some of the chemicals that are used in this process are, are toxic. But there are many chemicals that have never even been tested as to their toxicity. And we have no clue what they're going to do to our health or environment in the short or the long term. We don't know where the wastewater that stays down below, and that can be as much as 90% of the wastewater in the northeastern shales, is going to migrate in 20, 30 years or more. When the development is also way ahead of the protections that we have. Instead of doing the science and getting the safeguards before we move forward, we are flooring the accelerator and we're responding to crisis. When you move too fast, you cut corners and you, you have accidents. And that's particularly troublesome when you're talking about climate change because the single most important factor for the social and environmental impact of climate change is the speed at which it progresses. We move too fast with climate change and we don't have time to prepare or to adapt. And so the climate scientists are telling us that we have to address the most potent greenhouse gases right now as fast as we can. And on that list is methane. The hype and the hoopla is clouding our vision and making it impossible for us to hear the facts. There are hundreds of millions of dollars being spent to ensure that this industry can continue to operate without the science and without the protections we need. $320 million spent on lobbying the federal government just in just two years. As a result, what we are hearing now is not how we're going to end our addiction to fossil fuels, but instead, a hundred years of gas. Now, a hundred years of gas is based on extracting every molecule of gas from all of our reserves, even those that we haven't actually discovered yet, when it is well known that only about 10% of those reserves tends to be economically feasible to develop. And if we switch our power plants over to gas, and our transportation system over to gas, and our heating and cooking system, and then on top of that, we export liquid natural gas to other countries, how long is that abundant resource going to last? And at what price to our health and environment? The, the boom mentality produces magical thinking. The idea that this industry is going voluntarily to abide by golden rules for a golden age of gas is just a fairy tale. This industry fights every protection we try to put in place, federal and state, often when it's even in its economic interest to comply. What all this means is that we are in the middle of an uncontrolled experiment. If we get this wrong, there is no turning back. 
And so we need to take the opportunity now when we have a glut and we are not desperate for gas to do the science and get the protections in place before it's too late. And the natural gas boom that looks so exciting now goes bust in the face of the next generation. Thank you, Deborah Goldberg. Our motion is no fracking way the natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. And now our final debater speaking against this motion, Sue Tierney. Sue is a managing principal uh, at uh, Analysis Group, where she consults to businesses, government agencies, non-government organizations. She's a former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the U.S. Department of Energy and is a current member of the Secretary of Energy's Advisory Board. Ladies and gentlemen, Sue Tierney. Good evening, everybody. Joe told you about the upsides of the natural gas boom, and Deborah and Kate told you about some of the risks. I just want to start by saying if it were only as simple as my opponents tell you, then uh, life would be pretty, pretty easy. Let me tell you why their position that the costs of developing natural gas are simply not worth the benefits is wrong. First, what they didn't tell you is that there is absolutely nobody in the United States, no entity that could actually uh, introduce this proposition and make it so. There are millions, hundreds of millions of decision makers in our energy system. We rely on regulated markets, consumers and suppliers all around the country. Every one of you is making energy choices every day. States don't have the authority to completely stop this. No single state could stop this, nor could the federal government. On the consumer side, Americans tend not to think very much about energy. What they think about is getting to their job or getting to the shop where they hope to find lots of options, uh, whether they can power their computers or keep their homes warm or cool. And it's those realities that people don't think about energy that much that makes this a really hard issue to deal with. Everybody wants energy 24-7. They want it pretty cheap. Many say they'd like it to be clean and many really suffer when prices go up. That's the reality, and that makes this issue very gray and not as black and white as my opponents would tell you. My, uh, Deborah and Kate have set up, in some sense, a false dichotomy. They make it seem as though natural gas is evil, and so everything else is pure. Uh, we know that that's not the case. Surely, we should be developing more wind and solar power, uh, I'm sure everyone in this uh, audience agrees with that. Right now, 7% of America's energy supply comes from re renewable energy. Most of that is from the Roosevelt-era hydroelectric facilities, those gigantic projects, none of which we would be able to build, again, for environmental um, uh, impact reasons. The other major portion of renewables right now comes from biofuels, such as ethanol with its own problems from an environmental impact point of view. Wind and solar are expected to grow, but even if they're 10 times as much as they are today, we're still talking about a long way to go and a small portion of the supply, and I hope we get there. It's very hard. But these and every other energy choice are really pretty hard and very complicated. Why else would Japan be restarting its nuclear plants uh, so soon after the Fukushima disaster, it's because they need energy. Why else would Pennsylvania be opening up its shale gas resources for the development? 
they'd like some jobs and economic uh, benefits associated with it. And in fact, why are coal states fighting so hard against the US EPA's air toxics rules that would reduce the amount of coal burned at coal-fired power plants? Surely the coal industry has something to do with that, but also there are a lot of jobs in that state tied to coal. So what is clean, clean, cheap gas provided for us in this pretty gray landscape so far? Joe told you about how natural gas is taking market share from coal in the power sector right now. In 2012 alone, Southern Company, which is one of the biggest owners of a coal-fired power plant fleet in the country, expects to generate almost half of its power from natural gas. That's three times the amount from gas as it was five years ago. And this is astonishing. Coal has dropped from 70% of its fleet to 30% of its fleet uh, of, of, of uh, power generation. Now, certainly in a compartmentalized way, Americans often get really agitated about energy choices, but it's usually when it hits their backyard, as Kate and uh, Deborah have told you. Unfortunately, every form of energy is in somebody's backyard. Many communities are split about shale gas. Absolutely, that's true. Of course, some companies, excuse me, some communities are split when they think that there's going to be a Walmart coming because it affects the quality and tenor of their life in those areas. But think about it. Every type of energy facility that you can think of has split communities, whether it's a wind farm in Cape Cod, the power lines across the Midwest to tie the America's Saudi Arabia of wind to the people using wind uh, in other parts of the country. Nuclear plants, it's the case for. Shutting down existing coal plants. Split communities apart. These splits typically come down to jobs versus the environment, and that's surely the case here. Where I do agree with uh, Kate and Deborah is that shale gas development does have Im important environmental and community impacts. Should we regulate natural gas development more? Absolutely we should. Is regulation improving? Absolutely it is. Colorado and Pennsylvania are the uh, prime cases for advancements that are, are leapfrogging uh, for best practices. The federal government is too. Should we drop the so-called Halliburton loophole, which exempts water injections associated with hydraulic fracturing from the Safe Drinking Water Act? Why not? Wouldn't that provide a lot more public trust than we have right now? Should we tighten up uh, emissions of methane from the whole process? Absolutely we should. But do we think that the United States should take shale gas off the table? No. That's unrealistic. It's not even sensible. If we somehow, someone in the United States could decide to do that, uh, it, because it did more harm than good, what would we get? We'd probably get a little bit more renewables, maybe a little faster. We would get a lot more coal use, and we'd have mountaintop mining. We'd have coal ash piles, uh, some of which have recently spilled into rivers. We'd have much higher CO2 emissions uh, that contribute to, to global warming, and we'd have unhealthy levels of mercury emissions and other toxic chemicals. There's a solution to all of these issues. There are best practices. There should be much more aggressive attention to this. What I really wish is that people would stop demonizing this fuel because it makes it impossible to find sensible solutions in the middle. There are sensible solutions in the middle. We should be working on uh, enabling those to develop over time. 
Our main argument is that the two principal sources of energy in the United States, coal and oil, are much more damaging to the environment than is natural gas. And that's for the communities where those are used as well as to the nation as a whole. Sutina, your time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where the motion being argued is no fracking way the natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. Now we go on to uh, round two where the debaters address each other directly and take questions from me and from you in the audience. We have two teams of two members each here arguing against this motion. The team arguing against fracking, the team that says essentially no fracking way, Catherine Hudson and Deborah, Deborah Goldberg, we've heard them say that um, getting the price, the price to be paid for getting the gas out of the ground is just too high, uh, that it is an environmental threat. Uh, that it will ruin communities, that it is more expensive than it seems, that in fact that the harms will outweigh the benefits that were laid out by the other sides, and they're basically saying that the boom is getting ahead of science, that we don't know what we're getting into. The other side, Sue Tierney and Joe Nocera, the defenders of fracking, the enthusiasts are saying, yes, there are risks involved, but they're manageable. Regulations can be put into place, and they compare it to coal. Against coal, natural gas, they say, looks pretty clean. If you look at this thing as a national security matter, as a jumpstart to an economy that, that needs it, that having this stuff underground and being able to get at it is an enormous gift that's dropped into our laps. So we're going to go through some of that now and explore some of what they were talking about in the debate. And I want to go first to the side that's arguing uh, to the, the supporters of fracking. Your, your opponents have, have made this statement that the, the boom is getting ahead of science and implicitly saying, until we know a lot more, particularly on the environmental issue, the impact, we should slow down to stop. And you're saying the opposite. So take on the science issue and the not knowing, and whether that is a signal to stop. Either one of you, Joe or Well, first of Joe all, I think, I think we do know a lot. Um, in any kind of boom, it is correct. Industry goes in, and, and the environmentalists have done a great favor to the country because they've gotten on top of the fracking issues early, and, uh, but we do know that there's methane leakage, and there are, there's science going on right now to figure out what that leakage is and how to make the well casings better, and uh, it, that's one of a dozen uh, examples where, you know, the issue of the chemicals. You can go to websites now and see some of the chem most all of the chemicals. Uh, certain states have passed laws that demand that the chemicals be revealed. So. You know, what's basically been happening uh, over the last four or five years, you have cases like New York State, which is not doing, which stopped fracking until they could study it, and now they're getting ready to open it up in a small way, in a safe way. It can right. be done. Deborah Goldberg, your opponents say we do know a lot about the science. Well, let me be very clear right from the start that neither of us have argued that it should stop right now. What we have argued is that the boom is the problem that it's going much too fast, and it's outstripping both the science and the protections. So we think that what, for example, what New York has done makes a great deal of sense. To stop for a while when it's not necessary, we have a glut coming from other places, and take a look at what the impacts are and figure out what needs to be but done. To, but to Jonas Sarah's point where he says actually we, refuting you and saying that we actually do know a good amount now. Can you take that on? Well, we learn, we have learned more recently but the fact of the matter is there's a great deal that we don't know. 
And the reason that we don't know that is that the industry has done everything in its power to keep us from getting the data that we need in order to really do the studies. So for example, as I, I submitted a Freedom of Information request to New York State's Department of Environmental Conservation, asking them for the results of water quality studies that they had done in connection with oil and gas development in the state. And what they told me was, we don't have any. We don't ask for that. So how are you going to do serious science if you don't have a baseline test of the, the conditions and additional studies during operation and follow-up afterwards? You know, we are learning something because of public pressure, but there's a long way to go. All right, so, John, yeah, I'd like to weigh in on this one. Um, one of the things that uh, the debate uh, about what we know about science focuses on is the question of how much uh, methane emissions are leaking from the entire life cycle from the production well all the way to the consumer's burner tip. Uh, and we actually, there's um, a, a great deal that we know about that. We don't know everything. We should know a whole lot more. Deborah pointed out so a... What, 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 what does that mean, then? Is, is, is Deborah right? We, if, if we should know a whole lot more, is it we should slow things down until we know a whole lot more? No, um, we should not sh slow things down, but we should absolutely insist on better measurement. We should measure what is a baseline for uh, conditions prior so, to drilling. So why not slow things down more? If, if you're conceding that more work actually needs to be done, why not pause? What's the harm in pausing? Uh, there are a number of different harms. One of them is the billion dollar, uh, the multi-billion dollar contribution that lower natural gas prices has provided for the United States economy. Another reason is the, uh, the development of, petro of uh, chemical jobs and industries that are coming back to the United States because natural gas is a feedstock that's affordable. The greenhouse gas emissions that have been reduced in the last three years because of when you uh, take aside and account for the effects of the economy having crashed, there are much lower greenhouse gas emissions. All right, so Kate Hudson, your opponent, is saying that the benefits train has left the station. The good stuff is happening, and to, and to, and to, and to slow down the program would cause those, the list of harms you just went through. I, I think that the, the benefits that, that have just been recited are, are questionable. For instance, luring the petrochemical industry back into this country. Is that really what we want? Or shouldn't we instead be trying to move towards a green uh, uh, economic future for our children, uh, rather than having those fossil fuel-based industries come back? Jonas Well, <laughs> it's a big country. We need lots of different kind of jobs. Of course we need green jobs. We need other kind of jobs, too. I, I, are you in mid-sentence, or? I, I, I'm, I'm speechless. Because of the, so go ahead, Kate. No, let Kate respond. No, I, I, I want to actually go to the, the subject of jobs, because one of the characteristics of the extraction industry is the boom and bust. And what is happening already is that there is, uh, when the rigs come into town, there are lots of jobs that come up, truck drivers, they need a lot of truck drivers. They frack the wells and they leave. And then the economy busts. And the record is that those economies are in worse shape than before the extraction industries came to town. The, the, what the, uh, our opponents are saying is that when we look at a microscope about the impacts on localities, there are, there are, there are tremendous 
challenges that are going on in those communities. I don't think Joe or I would uh, uh, say that that's not the case. But every person in this audience drives a car, whether it's a Prius or, or something else, and there is extraction going on for uh, getting that oil somewhere. Um, we, coal mining is all over the country, and an, Colorado is an example of a state where they said the environmental benefits of, of a, a natural gas-fired fleet of power plants outweigh the, uh, the risks and the harms. So there are trade-offs and compensations across these areas. Um, the wind farms, if you want to talk about disrupting uh, areas, uh, by the way, I'm a huge fan of wind farm. I'm in favor of Cape Wind. I'm probably one of the few people uh, who's very eager to say that. Um, but as a result of that, there are lots of community impacts in a variety of different places uh, that people are talking about. Right, I have a question for the side that's arguing against fracking. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking for some clarity on, on the positions you have staked out. And it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to be agreeing with each other, but I feel as though you're not necessarily. Because Kate Hudson is saying, having the petrochemical industry you know, retake root here, particularly in new parts of the country, is not in a very attractive idea. At the same time, um, um, Deborah, you're saying, well, we're not against fracking. We just want fracking to be good, to, to, work, to, to work beneficially and without harm. So uh, is this team ag against fracking, uh, against the petrochemical industry, you know, working here, or is it not? I think that what we are, we are not saying stop everything all at once. And I don't think Kate is saying that either. We know that we need some natural gas, probably, to keep the lights on for a while. The really big problem is that the focus on this industry and the power and wealth of this industry is actually derailing the attempts that we have been making in the past to put a price on carbon, for example, to move ourselves to uh, an energy, an economy that would actually be sustainable in the future. So neither of us are saying that there, you know, that there aren't advantages um, in, in, some in some situations between putting in a, uh, a gas plant, say, or a coal instead of a coal plant, if we really knew what the life cycle methane emissions were. And both of our opponents have admitted that we don't. And we no. actually- but John, let me talk about the methane emissions and what we know about the science there. Uh, there's been one study by Cornell University that looks at the methane emissions and has concluded that the methane emissions associated with the entire life cycle of natural gas make it worse than coal. The, the study has been tremendously uh, critiqued by peers for a number of ways in which that study does not rely on what people know to be the case about emissions. For example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change suggests that you use a 100-year warming potential, you know, uh, an element that you would use to calculate how much uh, global warming potential there is from a fuel. Uh, the Cornell folks have used something very, very different than that, which greatly increases the harm that methane would show relative to coal emissions. There are two or three other technical reasons where the peer critiques have said these all exaggerate the emissions. Most of the, re the reasonable science has said, and there's a tremendous body of evidence on this, that coal, when you combust coal at a power plant, it will have twice as much emissions of greenhouse gas, including methane, uh, than coal. Can I respond to yes, that? Yes, please, Dr. Solomon. So there's not Deborah just Goldberg. one study, but there, uh, there's a variety of studies 
and they rely on estimates of emissions that have information that comes principally from the industry. I know of only one study that actually went out into the field and measured the emissions from the, the gas field. And that study showed that our methane emissions are about 4% of production. Now, I agree that we could reduce those if we had better regulations in place. But the industry is out there fighting those regulations. We just had a new EPA rulemaking that was designed to address the emissions from the fracking systems. And there was a new rule put in place that would decidedly make it better in terms of methane emissions because they, they would put the um, gas pipelines in before they actually let the gas go. And the industry successfully delayed the implementation of this green completion system for another three years. But John, I well, really Well, let me bring Joan and Sarah in. And Joe, I, uh, no, Joe, let me put the question to you, because you're, you're a journalist. You, you're paid to be cynical about <laughs> things. Um, are, are corporations, you, you, you made the point that you think the environmentalists are actually the ones who have squeezed information out of the corporations. Is that because that is the dynamic? In other words, are your opponents no, I, right that, I that I the corporations the are dodging and weaving? I think the dynamic is actually pretty different. Um, I, I think the dynamic is that uh, industry began this. This fracking was not started by Exxon or Shell. Fracking was basically a bunch of small companies who really developed the technology, as innovators often do, and then the big boys came in. Um, the environmentalists correctly said, this needs to be cleaned up, and it needs to be regulated, and needs to be looked at more closely. And what has happened is that the, um, the objections and the rising concern has basically caused industry, especially the big guys, to say, you know what, we really would like to be on the right side of this, and we are going to try and get there. And there have actually been, you know, Shell, you know, one of the big oil companies, they recycle uh, most of the water that they inject in the, in the well. There are lots of things like that going on. Now, part of the problem is that you can't rely on industry best practices. You have to regulate it. And part of the problem is that the regulation is mostly done by the states, not by the federal government. And so you're sort of dependent on uh, appropriate state regulations. Pennsylvania, when they began, didn't regulate it very well. They've learned a lot. They were regulating it better. Right. It is getting better in Pennsylvania. Kate Hudson, I mean, uh, Jonas Sarah paints a portrait of the situation getting better in terms of both government regulation stepping up and companies fessing up. What about that? Well, I would like to point out that one of the reasons why we're stuck with state regulation is because the oil and gas companies lobbied their way out of at least a half dozen uh, federal environmental laws and requirements. And so now it's with the states. And I'm, I'm not particularly impressed by the uh, example of Pennsylvania, which the communities in that state and the environment in that state has suffered greatly while the state played regulatory catch up. And it is still the case that the industry is given a tremendous break. In addition to that, at the state level, across the country, there are, are not enough regulators to police that. So even if you had half-decent regulations, you don't have the staff to put in the field to make sure that just, those regulations are just, being complied with. Just, I just want to know where this side draws the line, though, because you've, you, you've said now a couple of times you're not against fracking, you're against the pace and the enthusiasm. So do you see a future where 
where fracking happens in the Marcellus Shale, the, the area that is now, at least in the East Coast, most controversial, large, large, large area covering Pennsylvania and New York State. Are, are you, do you see a future where the regulation that you're asking for is so effective and the science has been so checked out that we do go, go ahead and have 80 years of fracking in that area and that's okay with you? 80 years of fracking is not okay with us. We need to get off of fossil fuels a lot faster than okay, that. So, uh, okay, so, okay, so. So, you, 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 you want a situation where all jobs are green jobs and you don't have a petrochemical industry because uh, they're bad guys and you have a situation where you, you want to, let's assume, you, let's assume you could shut down fracking tomorrow. Uh, let's, let's assume that. And, and your vision is that the consequence of that would be that this would cause a rush to renewables. But that's not what would happen. It would cause a rush to coal. Renew the market is buying energy based on its price. And the, one of the reasons renewal, renewables have had so much trouble is because they have a hard time competing with coal. Coal is the hardest thing to compete with because it's cheap. So you think that what you're trying to avoid, I understand, is another 100-year cycle of fossil fuel. And that's, that's admirable, but it's also unrealistic. And if you, what you have with natural gas is a fuel that is cleaner than coal and maybe could help you get to renewables. But if it, is, I, if, it is, if it is such a great boon, are they right that basically the incentive, you know, we're, we're in a world right now where the price of energy up until very recently has been seen as so egregious that there, there's been much more efforts put towards looking at renewables. And if, it's, if we suddenly enter into the 1950s again, I won't go that far, but if we suddenly get to a place where the price drops tremendously, we're going to stop the, the, the push to find alternatives. No, we're not. The states, uh, 37 states in the United States have adopted portfolio standards which require renewable energy to be entering the market really almost at, at any cost, and they are pushing that envelope forward. That is helping to reduce the cost of renewable energy. That is a fantastic thing. We, uh, but, no, but, but Sue, their argument is if, if, if we have a sustained period of really relatively less expensive energy, that that, incent that, that push will, will fade and come back again in 80 years when it's too late. Well, I, I agree with Joe that if there is uh, a moratorium on natural gas development, unconventional gas around the United States, we're going back to coal. Yeah, but that's not the answer to the question. Uh, it is the answer to the question. Whether you like it or not, it is the answer to the question. That is what will happen in the United States. Right, but will, will there be a drop-off in looking at alternative, uh, trying to develop alternative no. energies? No. There are policy triggers that are pulling renewable energy development into markets around the country. That is the case. Okay. Question I want to put to this side. Jonas Aaron, in his opening remarks, talked about a part of this we haven't touched on it yet at all. National security. Um, the ability to, you know, have our own private, in oil field terms, Saudi Arabia, right in our own pocket, right in our own country. We don't have to deal with these folks anymore. We can, we can try to realize the fantasy of energy independence. And that this is something that we've been dreaming about for 40 years. That you, you, don't, you don't just walk away from that. And, and, and your side basically, you seem to shrug at that. And, and not treat that as really, really great. So I'd like to know why you think that that's not necessarily germane. Well, I would say, first of all, Joe was very careful to talk about national, national or energy security and not energy independence. 
And I don't think that most economists and energy experts think that what we want is independence in the sense that we aren't going to do any trade on energy issues with any other country. What they are talking about is we want to be doing that trade with people who are our friends. And part of what has happened, because we've been so focused on gas, and again, I really object to the idea that the alternative is stop it now or 100 years. That is not what we're, that's a straw man, that's not what we're arguing here. But what we have done is we have seeded a lot of the industry that is developing, for example, photovoltaic solar energy to China. And so if we are not going to actually speed up our development of, of the renewable energies here, and instead we're going to be diverted into a 80 years of gas, then we are going to be at a point sometime the when we don't have the resources, the renewable resources, and we're going to be importing them from China. The, the, That's the not energy so, security. So in other words, you're saying, it's, it, you're saying it would be a very, very short-lived bubble of benefit in, in terms of energy security. I, I don't actually see where the en energy security is going to come ultimately if, in fact, the goal of the gas companies, which has been made clear by 15 applications that have been made to the federal government, to export the natural gas to the European and Asian markets, where they can get four to five times as much money for the gas as they can in the domestic market. So once we start exporting that gas, how is that helping our national energy security? Right now, Sue Tierney. the geopolitics of natural gas and oil are, are pretty compelling when you look around at a lot of different areas of the world. Uh, parts of Western Europe have been held hostage by getting natural gas across pipelines crossing the Ukraine from Russia. And that has uh, created tremendous problems. So the, the ability for them to be able to get natural gas from friendly areas is a very compelling story. Same is true for China. China actually has a very large shale gas uh, uh, deposits. They are very interested in learning the know-how in the United States uh, associated with this technology. If China is able to use natural gas, they may not build as many Soviet-style nuclear reactors. They may not have uh, challenges with the Middle East oil problem, which is uh, the, their own internal demand is driving. The, the, Deborah, the, the, the thing that um, you, you mentioned China, and you mentioned the solar industry moving to China. And I think it gets to the point that you don't really want to sort of deal with, which is cost. Solar is moving to China because it's cheaper. And solar is cheaper, and, and, and the problem renewables have, and have had, is that they're in this constant struggle to get the cost down to where it's cost effective to use. And it's, it's cheaper in China. I That's was on the board happened. of one of the now bankrupt uh, solar PV companies, Evergreen Solar. It was more cost effective to build the next manufacturing facility and then ship the panels back to the United States to meet the solar market because of China's subsidies were the issues. So manufacturing is moving to China, but the United States demand for solar is not going to mean we're not going to get solar back. We will get solar panels back. Right, but the question was energy security. And the concern was being at the mercy of a, com a country that isn't really aligned with our interests. And I think that we would mostly agree that unless things change very much, China is not someone that is completely bought into our value system. And so we are, we are not going to get the energy security. We may get the cheaper panels, but we are going to be dependent on, an, on a hostile country.
country. All right, I want to go to questions from the audience now. And um, the way it will work um, is uh, if you raise your hand, a microphone will come to you. Um, I need to tell the folks that are in, uh, not in the lit area that I can't see you. Uh, so if you can't see your wristwatch, read your watch, I can't see you. Um, so if you want to ask a question, step forward and uh, just come to the edge of the light and uh, I'll put a uh, try to take your question. And again, if you've arrived late, I really want this to be a question, not a debate. These guys are the debaters. To ask a question that's on our point and that's terse and that really helps move things along that's on our topic. Sir, right there. The question I have is to reframe the debate a little bit. Our concern is pollution of our groundwater and our environment with the fracking fluids. Joe, you had mentioned that everyone knows what's in it. I would take issue with that. Many of the chemicals are trade secrets. How can we allow that? Why can we not develop a safe, using the term loosely, fracking fluid and use that more exclusively? Hey, sir, do you mind just telling us your name? Bill Rodman. Thanks very much. So Sue full Sharon. disclosure would be a marvelous thing. I think Joe and I would agree that that should be the case. There is a very narrow piece of the uh, fracking fluid that is what we would call intellectual property. The rest of you could put the, all the ingredients out there and allow fracking and transparency on that issue. That should be the case. Uh, and your second point was, I don't remember, sorry. Why can't we come up with the safest and use it? Oh, there are many, many green completion approaches, uh, uh, environmentally friendly uh, uh, fluids. So there are on the marketplace, they can be used. Why don't we mandate it? We should. Let's go to the other side for a response yeah. to that. Uh, Deborah, Deborah Goldberg. Yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of things that we could do and we should do, but they're not happening. And there's huge resistance to their happening. And so, you know, there's a, a great deal of talk about this, this disclosure system that was created by um, the Groundwater Protection Council and the industry, and they are not disclosing everything. For the most part, they are disclosing only what is regulated as hazardous under our worker safety issues. There are a couple of states that have now said that you must disclose everything to the agency, but they are not disclosing everything to the public. And transparency remains a huge issue. Um, you know, the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board subcommittee on, on fracking, on which Sue Tierney served, um, talked about transparency in a much broader way so that we get the data about our, our water quality, we get the data about our air quality. None of this is, in, is available to the public right now. And we're involved in litigation this very minute to try and get the court record from a case involving public health unsealed so that public health professionals in Pennsylvania can actually see the allegations and, and use them as part of a database to help prevent and treat health problems in Pennsylvania. And we're fighting the industry okay. to try to get that transparency. Do you want to respond? Or I just want to mention the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board was unanimous in saying that there should be better disclosure, much better transparency, there mu much better regulation on all the ways that I've just been But every time you say that, it sounds to me like you're giving them the argument because they're talking about the present day situation. I, and we need to move forward on that. Stop demonizing natural gas as part of that. And the more that people are going to the sides of the room, no one is finding any middle ground on this. Sir, in the, yes sir. If you can again just state your name, thanks. As a model of a question, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. <laughs> Do what he did. 
My name is Dennis Carew. Why is not the solution, and I'm coming from this with some experience, slow it down, get the science right, have the industry profit when gas prices are four or five or six dollars instead of two dollars? Why is not that the solution to this whole debate? Okay. I, I have one uh, answer for that, which I think is it's uh, very compelling to me. In the period from 2006 through 2011, when we had dozens and dozens of coal plants being proposed around, new ones around the country, that would lock in large new coal plants for another 50 or 60 years, the changing price of natural gas relative to coal killed those projects. There is a lot of credit given for environmental opposition to those plants, and I will give them some credit. But at the end of the day, it was natural gas projects that killed those. Okay. Um, right there. If um, Also, if, if you have a sense that you're involved in this issue in a way that would be interesting to the rest of us, if you're uh, uh, working for an environmental organization or an energy company, share that with us when you introduce yourself. Thanks. projected to become drier um, as the climate warms. Do you think that diverting millions of gallons of water into natural gas wells is an appropriate use of a resource that's already becoming more precious? So, so, so John, let me try this. Um, I'm on the National Super. Climate Assessment uh, study right now on the impacts of a changing climate on the energy sector. You're absolutely right that places will be drier, there'll be more pressure on energy supplies. But I want to give you the water use for different fuels. Biofuels, ethanol, 5,000 gallons of water per MMBTU of energy. Coal, 23 gallons of water per MMBTU of energy. Conventional gas is two, and shale gas is two. And how much is wind? Uh, wind is wonderful, <laughs> and we'll and we'll quintuple it. We'll we'll do ten times the amount, and we still will have a little bit. Is is it true though that I'm just trying to go back to sixth grade science when you know the, the it rains and then the water evaporates and goes up and becomes a cloud again and then it rains and comes back to earth and it's a circle, but that in this process once the wastewater has truly been used to the point where it can't be recycled that it's stored under you know, it's stored in wells well underground in perpetuity. So that water is taken out of the sixth grade circulation. Is that <laughs> permanently? Is that true? Yes, that's true. Is um, that worrisome? Around or? the country uh, for decades and decades, underground injection has been the water treatment process of choice. There are parts of the country where that cannot work because of the geology underground. Pennsylvania is an example where there are very limited areas to be able to do that. So I want to know if the quantities of water that, that essentially are being taken out of circulation in a broad sense is, is significant. Now, we understand that it can impact at a local level, but in a broad sense, are we talking about a significant amount of the Earth's water? And I'm putting that to the side, arguing against fracking. I haven't really looked globally. And of course, the answer to that question is how much fracking do we do? Mm -hmm. um, it varies a great deal. 
you know, on a local basis, and that's where the water consumption takes place. So, for example, in, in the West, we do have major problems with drought. We have forest fires right now. It's projected to get much worse. In the East, we have a lot more water than we have in the West, and the con water contamination issues are more serious from our perspective than the water quantity. But on the other hand, you know, if you look locally at, you know, headwater streams where we have native trout, um, you can back, you back up your truck to one of those streams and you can drain it dry, and that has happened in Pennsylvania. So I can't say I really have the answer to your question, okay. but, but you know, the country, the, Jonas, sir. the country has um, historically, uh, in other forms of uh, energy production, oil for instance, set aside land and said, thou shalt not drill here. And, you know, New York is doing the same thing uh, with its watershed. And it, it doesn't seem to me unreasonable to say, yes, fracking, fracking is a good thing for the country, but it has some risk, and therefore there are certain places we won't do it. That seems like a completely reasonable approach. I would agree. <laughs> but to me, that means that you're agreeing with us that we need to scale back. Because we have to. No, work. that's, we don't that's no, actually it. saying you would do it surgically where you know you want to protect things, um, such as the unfiltered water supply of New York City, which is the way it's supported there. And I'm great that we found this common ground <laughs> because that isn't what the industry is saying in New York. I can we assure you. We are not the industry. I know that. <laughs> Thank Sir, goodness. In the, in the center. Uh, a microphone will come in. Yeah, thanks very much. Can I just, um, well, yeah, the sure, Kate Hudson. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say that I think that the picking out special places that will be protected from fracking has some serious environmental justice issues around that. So the city, the people who live in New York City, their drinking water will be protected, but other people in other parts of New York City, their drinking water will not be protected? I think that's Actually, a significant policy question. Most of New York City's, City's water supply, as you know, comes from the aquifers upstate. So we're talking about all of New York City, if, if that's what you were thinking. No, she's talking about all of New York State, right? The, you know, we do want to see every community protected, um, not just ones that have a huge amount of political power in, in downstate. <laughs> and, and, and we, don't want to be in a situation where the industry is going into the most economically depressed, most politically powerless areas, and that's where people are not only unable to um, make a living, but they're now being asked to shoulder disproportionate burdens on their health just to keep food on the table. Uh, could, could you stand up for us? Thanks. My name is Baron Bixler, and I am just wondering if you could comment on whether you think that the post-9/11 um, national, I guess, rhetorical stance on on security issues of national security vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East, and more recently the Great Recession, have provided the uh, the fracking industry with a convenient rhetorical backdrop with which to put forth its agenda. Um, okay. To develop. All right. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. that question is uh, like a big softball to you guys. So you yes. can swing at it. Take a swing. <laughs> Kate Hudson? No, I, I think that uh, uh, I'm not sure actually whether the 9-11 the itself, I think that the using of the national security energy independence argument to support moving forward with natural gas is playing off of the concerns that the nation has had around 9-11. 
Um, but I think as we've talked about, we think that that is not actually very realistic. And uh, so. Joe, did, and, and you the know, country, to The country yeah, has been trying to, every president in my memory, practically, has talked about the importance of weaning ourselves from OPEC oil, which, and, and, and yet, and yet, here we are, finally, in a position to actually do something about it, because we have our own resource, that, a resource that we really didn't even know we had 20 years ago. And so, 9-11 may have spurred the, the urgency to do this. I mean, my goodness, we have invaded countries. We have, you know, our, our entire foreign policy towards the Middle East is uh, consciously or subconsciously about oil. And so the idea that we can change the way we think about other countries, the way we can deal with foreign policy, because we no longer have to sit around and worry about whether they're going to give us our oil or not, seems to me like a wonderful thing. Kate Hudson. The vast majority of the oil that we use in this country is used for the transportation sector. Natural gas is not going to replace that. Natural gas will be used for actually, the power sector, but could. not for the transportation that, sector. So, well, let me, let me just pick up on, on Wait, uh, Kate's actually, point for a moment. Actually, that's a moment for the other side to okay. respond to, because I want to hear what they have to say, Sue Tierney. Every thoughtful well-documented study that looks at how the United States will transform and decarbonize its economy includes shifting more of the transportation sector to electricity and natural gas, uh, putting carbon capture and sequestration on natural gas facilities, but there is a role for fossil in that decarbonized world, and oil is about this much, and it's in the aviation sector. You know, Deborah, um, well, let me let me let, let Deborah come. Joe, let me let Deborah come back because she. So cut I, her I off. was just going to say that Joe recognized Fred Cup as somebody who he thought was reasonable and authoritative, and the Environmental Defense Fund has recently done a study, looking at the climate impacts of shifting from coal to gas. And I will tell you that they do find, they do agree that we would do better, assuming that our methane emissions don't rise to the level of four percent. But they absolutely disagree that if we shift our entire transportation sy system from oil to gas, that we are going to have net climate benefits over as much of a, as 100 years. So I, I think we can agree that there might be a small part. There's natural gas buses in New York City. There might be small amounts, but shifting the whole sector over is just a non-start. Uh, let me say two quick things about that. First of all, uh, what EDF has actually said is that uh, if methane leakage can come down, and, uh, you know, the idea, the idea that we can't have any technology to make things better seems to me uh, pretty unreasonable. Technology does make things better. And the idea that we're always going to be stuck, even if, in fact, if we are today, at 4% methane leakage, you know, is, is not necessarily the way it's going to play out. Secondly, it's already happening. Um, not only are buses fueled by natural gas in cities, but, but um, large trucking companies are beginning to convert to natural gas. And uh, large energy companies are beginning to think about putting natural gas stations uh, on the interstate highway. All right, question down the front row. Sir, could you stand and tell us your name and if you're affiliated with the... Maurice Tobin. Um, I've written a lot of legislation. I've helped with a lot of legislation in Congress. 
And I just want to congratulate you on the scare tactics that you use, because believe it or not, it helps us write our, our legislation. An example of it. So can you, can you just bring it to a question for them? OK, I, I just wonder uh, if stopping this process I is the answer. And of course, that's not what we have advocated. So I would say no once again. Um, another question. I'm sorry that I'm tending towards the right, right there. Did you have your hand up? No. Yes, you did. OK, yeah. Uh, my oh, name. All right, I'll come back to you. Go ahead, sir. My name my name's Kevin Ault, and I'm an engineer in the oil business. I have fracked wells in Pennsylvania, fracked wells Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico. You give the impression that the science has to catch up. Do you have any idea how long we've been fracking wells? We have been fracking wells not for shale gas for many decades. But the shale gas fracturing, which includes two technologies used together, the horizontal drilling and the hydraulic fracturing, has been used seriously only for about a decade. And it's the impact of the shale gas drilling that are driving all that opposition because we are not prepared for the volume of, of the wastewater. And we have nobody out there in the federal government and in many states that are looking cumulatively at all of the impacts. So it's about wastewater. It is wastewater. What do you, I'm, so, I'm okay. sorry, I don't understand I, the question. I, you actually did ask a question, but I, I, I can't have you debate. But if you, do you want to ask a follow-up question? Yeah, you, you, you okay. say at first that it's about methane leakage. Uh, wastewater is handled efficiently coming out of all the wells that are in Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, what have you. And again, Pennsylvania will adapt very quickly to this. So. It's not a wastewater question. I mean, it, it's not a wastewater okay. handling management question. Where, okay. where is the wastewater going that's coming into, out of the wells? Into water disposal wells. In Ohio. In Pennsylvania as well. There's one commercial well that takes shale gas wastewater in all of Pennsylvania. But there's, there's lots of private wells. They, okay. They're not taking this. Sir, with with respect, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this because, not because I don't think it's a legitimate point, but I just don't want you to be the debater because they, that's their job here. Because it's right so there, much Matt. fun when you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good evening. I'm, I'm Kathy Olivia Rodman. I thank you all for being here. It's been a wonderful presentation. Um, Joe, this is for you and uh, Sue. Um, I was on the board of EDF and um, for many years and watched legislation for coal and for many years how the lawyers handled scrubbers and a lot of other work. It was wonderful. Uh, Joe, you bring up the question of national security. If you look backwards at where we've come with environment extraction. Anything taking anything out of the earth has plus and minus. But there's short-term, long-term gain. My question to you is, as a journalist, would you address the issue of water as national security over the next 100 years? Because if we pollute our water, we don't have water to drink. That's going to be an issue. And Sue, you, with, all, with all you're doing, all your analysis. OK, but yeah. water, water, water is going to be one of the central issues of the century that we live in. Um, there's no question about that. And there's also no question that we have to work hard to avoid polluting uh, water. Uh, and that's why I advocate that there are areas that we shouldn't frack. And I, and I also think, you know, this is why I also, you know, on this side of the table, we're not saying frack horribly. We're not saying, hey, let's put the worst wells in we can and let them leak and, and, and damage the environment. Um, what we're saying is, 
if you do it responsibly, if you do it in a regula regulated way, you minimize the possibility. You don't eliminate it. You don't eliminate all risk. Okay. Sir, right down the front there. I thought I understood the question that we were going to vote on before I came in here. But as, as this has continued, it seems to me we're talking about matters of degree. So when we do cast our vote, are we voting for no fracking with this uh, red sign that says none? Or are we voting for some degree of fracking that's controlled? That it sounds to me like you're both saying the same thing with different, different degrees of militancy. All right, let me... First of all, first of all, just to, to, to clearly clarify, we're not saying no fracking at, at all. The, the motion says that the cost-benefit analysis is a judgment on the cost-benefit analysis as opposed to immediately making a policy decision. That said, where is, the, where is the disagreement between these two sides? Well, I was worried about that, actually, when we were going into this, because it seems to me that we're probably much closer than the organizers of this event might have thought. <laughs> which I, doesn't I make, so we're trying to make for a lively debate. I, I, don't, I don't agree. <laughs> I think, I, I think See, that... See, he, he doesn't agree with you already. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joe. The, the people on, on, on this side believe that the issues of the economic benefits, the uh, security benefits, and even the environment, ben, environmental benefits make fracking... Uh, the benefits far outweigh the costs. That is our view. And uh, I think, I don't think you've said anything that really has changed our minds on that. The, the, the issue where, do we care about having it done right? Yes, we do. Do we think the benefits are tremendous for America? Yes, we do. And Do I we think the benefits would still be there Sue if Turner. we added 50 cents to the price of natural gas to cover these things? Yes, the benefits are huge. But I would Kate say Hudson. that the question is not whether we can do it right at some point in the future, but whether we're doing it right, not right now. Right now. All right, I have to say that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Thank you. And now we go on to round three. And round three is where each of the debaters has uh, a last chance to persuade you to their point of view or to persuade you that they've actually presented the better argument. Our motion is this, no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. Each debater gets two minutes to summarize his or her position. And speaking first against this motion, Joe Nocera, an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. <laughs> you can applaud. Let me do that you, again. You don't have to. Let me do that again. And speaking against the motion, Joe Nocera, an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. On some, on some level, I gave my closing argument about two seconds ago. Um, uh, I do feel that it's clear that natural gas has... Um, reduced emissions, uh, it is demonstrably better than coal, it, it is offering us the possibility, wonderful possibility to wean ourselves from Mideast oil, and, um, and, it's, and it's been incredibly economically beneficial for the country um, to have gas plentiful and cheap. 
I want to say, I really want to end on, on this thought. The, our opponents, <laughs> I want to I I think about it this way. When, when you're arguing against fracking, you're not arguing for a future of renewables. You may think you are, but you're not. You're arguing for the status quo. You're arguing for, for a world where coal is still the dominant power generation, where oil is still the, uh, the fundamental fuel that we use to transport ourselves, you know, where, where all the problems that we have today that have been brought about by the way we use energy are still with us. And so, you know, I, I, what I would ask the other side to think about is, you know, what does the future look like if we don't have fracking? What does the future look like if we don't have this wonderful source of natural gas, this abundant source of gas that we've been given? I don't think the future looks all that well, all that good. Thank you very much. Thank you, General Sarah. Our motion is no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. And here to summarize her position in support of this motion, Kate Hudson, Watershed Program Director for Riverkeeper. Having heard what our opponents have said here tonight, you might think we should not be concerned about the impacts of fracking. In their view, any problems we have now will be fixed with golden rules, more regulation, and hopes of improved technology. I think of a few reasons to remain concerned. One, there will always be accidents, spills, mechanical failures, and human error. Two, the gas industry has consistently fought enforceable rules, and there is insufficient state and federal staff to ensure compliance with what rules do exist. Three, the idea that the industry as a whole will comply with voluntary best practices, as I think our opponents have acknowledged, in the face of falling gas prices is unlikely. Given the continued risk of harm and all of fracking's costs, weighed against its limited benefits for most, it is beyond dispute that the natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. Simply ask the mothers of children who tend the Red Hawk Elementary School in the Front Range town of Erie, Colorado. Last fall, there were children who stayed home from school with intestinal and breathing problems due to the hundreds of oil drill rigs, in, uh, gas drill rigs in the region. Then, the industry insisted on locating gas wells a few hundred yards from the school and a short distance from a school playing field. Parents and children joined together to protest the new wells, and the town put a temporary moratorium on new permits. But that does not apply to the already permitted elementary school site. So this summer, as drilling takes place, teenage boys will be, have football practice in the shadow of operating drill rigs. The families of Erie make it clear if this uncontrolled experiment, which is the natural gas boom, is allowed to continue Homeowners, farmers, schools, and hospitals whose neighbors agree to lease will have no choice. But we have a choice now. The shale gas boom is doing more harm than good, and we urge you all to say, to vote, no fracking way. Thank you, Kate Hudson. And that is our motion, no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. And here to summarize her position against the motion, Sue Tierney, a former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the U.S. Department of Energy. I was all... I was also Secretary of Environmental Affairs in Massachusetts, a head of the Environmental Police, head of environmental regulation, 
I came into this field because I grew up in Southern California and couldn't stand the fact that we couldn't see the mountains from where I lived. I went into energy because it seemed to me it was an unbelievably complicated world in which you had these environmental impacts which were so compelling, and yet you had everybody using cars and a variety of things. In the 30 years that I've been in the energy and environmental fields, I have never seen more uh, polarizing and demonizing discussions as now exist on shale gas. And I saw nuclear plant debates. <laughs> I saw transmission line plan to be everything. This is one where the science and the information is, uh, is the gap between what we know and what people say we know is wider than I've seen in any other field. The reason I bring this up is this polarizing part of it makes it impossible for the two sides to find the middle ground. And that's why uh, th this issue is we need to stop demonizing this particular fuel because if we do that, we kill it, and we kill not only the, uh, in the benefits that Joe just described, but we get back to coal. And the rea that is the reality uh, of our, that, we, that, our, that we face. And I urge you for that reason to vote against this uh, proposition. Thank you, Sue Tierney. Our motion is no fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. And here to summarize her position in support of the motion, no fracking way, Deborah Goldberg, managing attorney at Earth Justice. I'd like to close with two of my favorite quotes from my opponents. In February of this year, Joe Nocera wrote, how much methane leaks into the air as a result of fracking? Incredibly, nobody knows. In May of this year, Sue Tierney said on NPR, 50 years from now, are we really going to be wondering if we really screwed up because we went on this big gas boom? You really wouldn't want to be messing that up. And I agree. We don't know. And we really don't want to be messing that up. And that means we need to scale back, slow down, and resist the boom mentality. We have to scale back. We do not have to drill hundreds of thousands of wells just because we can. We don't have to drill near elementary schools, and we can protect our state forests and our parks. We need to slow down. We need to take the time to let the science catch up with the practice and the safeguards catch up with the science. And we need the resources to ensure that the rules we have in place are vigorously enforced. There's no rush. The gas has been there for millions of years. It's not going away. Finally, we have to ignore the advertising slogans on both sides, the demonizing goes on on both sides, filling the airwaves, and stop living in a fantasy world of endless fossil fuel consumption without consequences. We need to restart the conversation about putting a price on carbon, and we need to develop a real, meaningful energy policy, not all of the above. That's no policy at all. Does that make sense to you? Do you want to limit the intensive gas development and the breakneck speed of fracking until we answer the open scientific questions and put policies in place to ensure that we are not messing up? Then you should vote for us. Because you recognize, as we do, that until we have those safeguards in place and until we have that information, we have nothing but an uncontrolled experiment and the natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. 
Thank you very much, Deborah Goldberg. And that concludes round three and this Intelligence Squared debate. And now it's time to find which side you feel has argued best. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypads at your seat. Remember, we had you vote at the beginning of the debate on where you stood on this motion. No fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. You've heard the arguments. We want to ask you to judge which side presented their arguments best. If you agree that this side presented the best arguments, the side that is for the motion, but that means that they are against, in a broad sense, fracking, push number one. If we're at the other side, which uh, takes the opposite position, uh, push number two. And if you're undecided or became undecided, push number three. And we'll lock in the results in about 10 seconds, and in about 90 seconds, we'll have the uh, numbers for the two comparisons. So while that's being tabulated backstage, I just want to, um, I really want to thank these debaters for, for doing what we asked them to do, which was really bring good arguments to this. And um, also, just by, by point of comparison, it's our first time in Aspen, and, and, and you know, as a rule, uh, audience questions can be a sort of a tricky area to go to. Tonight, uh, this audience was spectacular in the questions. Not just in the format, but really, you move things along. You put very, very interesting things into this debate. So I want to give yourselves a round of applause for that. Because we really did. Um, so uh, just a few things to, to say. We want to again thank the Aspen Institute uh, for inviting us out to this year's Ideas Festival, for letting you see what it is that we do back in New York at Intelligence Squared US. Thank you very much for the, uh, to the American Clean Skies Foundation for their underwriting support for this and, and uh, uh, making it all happen. And um, if, uh, if some of you are New Yorkers or going to New York, uh, we want to let you know that this fall what we intend to do with our series of debate topics is to uh, try to, to, to follow uh, the ebb and flow of, of the dialogue that's taking place in the presidential election um, and, and keep, you know, bounce off what's actually happening in, in, in that, that debate by exploring the issues in more depth in our own debates. And so the motions uh, that we're working on now will be announced uh, in several weeks and also who the debaters will be. So we have a website, usq.org. You can go look to that. Uh, you can buy tickets there and keep in touch with us. And if you get to New York, please do come. Also, in mid-October, we're going to be on the road again. We're going to be going this time to Chicago. Uh, this will be our second annual Chicago Ideas Week. Um, if you're in New York, I should say, our, we're changing locations. Uh, we're going to the Kaufman Center, which is near Lincoln Center. We can be seen on public television in New York and uh, also here and around the country on 150-plus NPR stations. We also have a podcast uh, that is on iTunes. And we have a newsletter. You can sign up for our website. So uh, again, thank you very much for the debaters and for your participation. And now we have the results, and we'll find out what happened. So remember, before the debate, we asked you to vote on this motion. No fracking way. The natural gas boom is doing more harm than good. Uh, if you're for the motion, it means you're saying no fracking way. If you're against the motion, you are disagreeing with no fracking way. So before the motion, bef I'm sorry, before uh, the debate, 38% uh, of you were for the motion, no fracking way. 53% were against. After the 
I'm sorry, wait, sorry, sorry. I did, I'm sorry, it's a split. I'm going to start this again. Before the debate, 38% of you were for the motion, 38% against, evenly split, and 24% were undecided. After the debate, 53% of you are for the motion, no fracking way, that's up 15%. 42% are against, that's up only 4%. 5% are undecided. That means the team arguing for the motion, no fracking way, has won this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan of Intelligence Squared US, and we'll see you next time.